Ramble. I don't really like doing chores around the house, I'm going to be honest with you, and I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time, and I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized, and I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging, and that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me, there is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously, that's what I've been listening to. I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for her job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters. Especially the wife, Nina. She just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something and Millie is hiding something and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try audible now free for 30 days visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 that's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try audible free for 30 days bada bing bada boo welcome to this week's mini sode of rotten mango i'm your host stephanie sue Joe's mom had big plans for Joe. She wanted Joe to do things that she would never have done when she was his age. You know the parents that have all those high expectations for their children? She was kind of like that. She just wanted Joe to bring in the dough, okay? She's like, you need to start earning your keep around here. You need to start paying for the groceries. She told him, you're going to be a big star. You're going to make these big old films, okay? Joe's confused. He was nine. He had never acted in his life before. He smiled, though. He's like, okay, mom, carry on. And she's like, you're going to be an actor. Joe is still confused, but he couldn't ask questions because he was mute and he was never taught sign language. He couldn't read or write. There was not really many ways that Joe could communicate with her. He wondered how he would even memorize a script when he couldn't read it. And then catching on, Joe's mom smiled at him and she beamed down at him. Joe, don't worry. You are going to be the youngest porn star ever. OMG. Joe was too young to even know what that meant. But for the next four years, Joe would be taken to a house every single weekend and school holiday. A house that was filled with children and men. Men with cameras. Grown men who would force the children to perform all sorts of disgusting, vile acts so that they could film it all. Yeah, we're talking about a huge child pornography ring today. Now, as always, full show notes are available at RottenManglePodcast.com, but the main sources for um, this pod was a book called Cry Silent Tears by Joe Peters. He has another amazing book, which I'm going to read next, and I would love for you guys to read both of them with me because I think this story just needs to be heard. And, and it needs to be felt, and Joe tells it like like nobody else. I mean, this is Joe's story. But his next book is called Cry Myself to Sleep. I was researching about the Balenciaga child abuse campaigns recently. That's going to be on YouTube, a different video. But I mean, just the sheer number of children that are victimized 
on a daily basis is terrifying. I mean, I think when we really sit there and like take a moment to grasp just how many children are being abused or assaulted, I feel like my brain was about to explode. Even when we fly into New York City, I can't help but like stare out the window. And I mean, I do this practically on every plane, but you start freaking yourself out. Do you guys ever do that? Like thinking how many dead bodies are hidden? Like how many houses are filled with violence and people locked in cellars? I think that's what makes today's case even more infuriating. I mean, just adults preying on little children is already despicable and those people deserve to rot in the darkest, hottest parts of hell or whatever painful afterlife you believe in. But the ones that prey on disabled children, on mute children, the ones that audibly, verbally cannot voice their trauma, it makes my blood boil. So with that being said, there is a trigger warning that it's going to be heavy on child abuse today. Just really heavy. It's really gruesome. It's really intense. So with that being said, have you heard of the Kwangju Inwa School in South Korea? You're mm-hmm. like, okay, this sounds completely random. What does this have to do with Joe? But hear me out. It all connects. Because pedophilia and child abuse and the abuse of children with disabilities seems to be universal. It's from all corners of the world. The Inwa School was opened back in 1961. It's no longer open, by the way. You'll find out why. But it was a school that was dedicated in South Korea, dedicated to students with learning disabilities. So most of the students, they were hearing impaired. Many of them had speech impediments. A lot of them were mute. The school was supposed to be like this amazing place. Wow, we've got these dorm residences for students who don't have guardians who can take care of them. You can stay with us. We'll take care of you. The school was supposed to be dedicated to making sure that the students got all the resources, the curriculum that they needed to survive as adults in South Korea. I mean, it sounds like it should have been a safe place. It sounds progressive. It sounds like the type of place that more cities need, right? But it wasn't. So to give you an example of how horrible this school was, most of the students were hearing impaired and most of the school staff weren't fluent in sign language. So, I mean... It's kind of ridiculous. I guess you're just expecting the children to read lips or to read everything that you write. It's out of this world. I think only one of the teachers was fluent in sign language. And he also seemed to be the only teacher that actually cared about the students. There's actually a Netflix movie that's based on this true life story. It's called Silenced. And in the movie, the teacher realizes this one teacher amazing. He realizes that all the students are genuinely terrified of him for no reason at all. Like they are scared to be alone with him. They avoid him at all costs outside of the classroom. They don't want to be near him. He's like, that's weird. I've never had this experience before being a teacher. Eventually he starts finding out it's because the kids are being molested by the school administrators. Now, in real life, it happened a little bit differently. Um, The teacher was informed by one of the student's parents that their daughter had been sexually assaulted by the school administrator and she was going to drop out. I mean, he was confused because, first of all, why is the parent alerting him? Like, there's so many people above him. He's just one of the teachers, right? Why is nobody doing something? Why is the administrator still coming to work where there's more children around? So he told the school nurse about it to ask her if, you know, other students had evidence of sexual assault and the school nurse just brushed it off. So this teacher feels like, am I losing my mind? He went to the other teachers. They brushed it off too. I mean, what the fork is going on here? So finally, when nobody would listen, he reached out to human rights groups and he was 
fired. He was What? fired from his job. And in Korea, South Korea, it's really hard to get a new job when you've been fired. It's not like America. Basically, you being fired is like you being blacklisted from your profession, your industry, your livelihood. And it was a risk that he took because the victims deserved a voice. So he gets fired. He gets all sorts of threats from this school. And with enough screaming, enough pleading, enough begging, the human rights group decided to get involved. Former students were interviewed. And at that point, the police kind of got involved, you know, but it was bizarre. It's like the police and these government officials, they cared, but they didn't seem that passionate to get to the bottom of this case. They didn't seem that passionate to put it to an end until public outrage got so big they had to face the music. Then they found out so many alarming things. Okay, this school was doing so many shady things, not just molesting their students, but staff would take government-issued supplies for the kids. So imagine just boxes of notebooks would show up at the school. The school would sell them to random vendors for cheaper to make a quick profit. How much can you even make from notebooks? That's what I'm saying. They enrolled students beyond maximum capacity to receive more government funds. And there were even allegations of students being forced to work, like being forced into physical labor at nearby plants and factories. And then nine victims came forward to share their stories of sexual assault. The youngest victim was seven years old. They were molested by six different school officials, the principal and the head administrator being two of them. The students said, you know, the assault started gradually The staff would either accidentally brush past your chest or maybe your backside. And yeah, it's wildly inappropriate, but it was super subtle. Then the students were invited to the staff's office where porn would just be playing. Students even claimed that they had walked in on the administrators playing porn and touching themselves. And then slowly, they were sexually assaulted. Many of the victims were mute, so they felt incredibly powerless. They said that they couldn't even verbalize what was happening to them. Sometimes the victims would scream, and if another student heard and they tried to stop it, the administrators would just beat them with bats or glass soda bottles. If the victims tried to complain to anyone, a nurse, a teacher, they were punished. They were beaten. One of the victims' heads was forced into a running washing machine as punishment. One of the worst cases was a young student. Her hands and ankles were tied up just all night long, okay? She, from evening until morning, she was sexually assaulted for 15 hours straight. Sometimes the teachers would play a movie in the class and ask one of the female students to the back where the teacher would rape her right then and there in the back of the class. If a student performed poorly on a test, she would be sexually assaulted as punishment. Most of the assaults were targeted towards the dorm students since they had nowhere to go. It's not like they could go home at the end of the school day. They literally resided at the school. They had to sleep at the school. One of the most disturbing stories, the principal invited a student to his house to have dinner and then dragged her into his office inside of his house. By the way, his wife and children were outside. They just all had dinner together. And he raped her in his office inside of his family home with his wife and children right next door. A lot of people speculate that the principal's wife knew exactly what was going on. And it gets even crazier oh because all the staff were related. So the head administrator was the school chairman's son and the principal of the school was also the chairman's son. So the principal and the head administrator, they were brothers and they were both heavily going around just raping their students. 
So it's a like a whole family running the school. Yes. And just raping the kids. Yes. The head teachers were also all relatives of the family, like the main teachers. They all knew what was going on. They tried to quiet the victims so that they could protect their own. In the end, six suspects were arrested, but don't get excited that justice is going to be served because the head administrator who was at the center of all the allegations, he was the really nasty one. He got only eight months in prison. The principal got two years and six months and the others, they only received like 10 months each. But most of them appealed their sentences and they were released on probation and they probably spent maximum a few weeks in jail. So you're like, how the hell did that happen? So in Korea at the time, the law around sexual assaults were different. And the victims would have to personally sue their rapist in order to put them in jail. Which meant that students who were already dealing with this trauma, they would now have to be dealing with the trauma of the lawsuits. So a lot of them backed out. They just wanted to put the whole thing behind them. But thankfully... A movie was made called Silenced, and the head administrator was sentenced to eight years in prison with new evidence coming out as they were filming for that movie. No way. Yeah. So the movie served some justice. Yes. But it just shows the world. I think even even eight years is not enough, you know? Of course. I think it just shows the world that we need to protect children. I mean, I think it's so terrifying just how blatant these people are. Like, the same thing with Balenciaga. Like, it's so... They don't even try to hide it. I just don't understand. And I just feel like we don't really do a good job at protecting children, especially those that are extra vulnerable. So this case really put into perspective for me just how horrible the systems are at protecting children. Let's talk about Joe. Joe's first word was fuck. I'm just going to be very honest with you. Doctors speculated that Joe had been through so much trauma at a young age that at just five years old, he stopped talking. The connection between his brain and his mouth did not work anymore. So no matter how hard he tried, he could not control his voice. I think that must have been so terrifying. I mean, being so young and suddenly you can't talk like you could before. The confusion, the trauma, the frustration of not being able to communicate anymore. The isolation. Doctors said that they didn't know if this would be short-term or long-term effect of trauma but at school, Joe starts working with a teacher to help him learn to communicate, you know? In some way, shape, or form, he wasn't able to read or write even at that time. He didn't know sign language. So one of the teachers was incredibly patient with him. She tried to understand what he was saying even when he wasn't talking. She heard him more than anybody else did. After year after year of just trying to do these mouth exercises, you know, Joe, this is where you put your tongue. Joe, do this with your lips to make the right noises, Joe. She turned around, distracted with something, when Joe coughed out his first word in nearly five years. She turned around, and he said, fuck. And both parties knew it was a bad, bad curse word. And she remained calm, and she said with a giggle, oh, well, at least you know what that word is then. And that day, it was almost as if a blockage had cleared in Joe's mind. The words started rushing out. His throat started to swell from the strain that he was putting on it. He said, talking is a function most of us take for granted every day of our lives. But when you're trying to relearn the knack of it from scratch, it's incredibly complex and difficult. How old was he then? Ten. So you're like, what happened to Joe that traumatized him so much? It all started when he saw his dad die in front of him. He watched the whole thing happen, screaming, and he couldn't do anything. 
I think this is one of those stories that really, I don't know, it just stayed with me. And it made me realize just how fragile life is, how in the blink of an eye, everything can change. And, and if I think about it for too long, I start to get terrified. So Joe was a little boy when he went to work with his dad. He was five years old. So obviously Joe is not the one working. His dad is his dad, William. But Joe always went to the auto shop to hang out, be supervised. He loved watching his dad crawl under the cars and make them work again. It was like magic. His dad would come up to him and initiate him into the car club, which was just to smear some car grease on his nose. And Joe felt like that was like his battle wound. That was his war scars, you know. And that day, it's a windy morning in February. They pull up to the auto shop and one of the coworkers called over to Joe's dad. Hey, can you smell the gas? I looked all over for it. Can't really find it. William nodded, ducked back into the car. Joe, you stay here. It'll take a minute, okay? Joe knew the drill. When it came to gas, for some reason, Joe wasn't allowed near the stuff. If someone smelled like gas, if something smelled like gas, the whole thing, the whole operation at the auto shop, people were looking for it. His dad would tell him over and over that cars are fun and cool. Yes, they're amazing. You can learn from them, but cars are very, very dangerous. So Joe sat in the car while he watched his dad through the window. He watched him walk into the shop and saw him roll under the car that his coworker was having difficulties with. Everything was normal. The phone was ringing. Customers were in and out. Joe even called out to his dad from inside the car. Dad, can I go, can I go under the car with you? No, you stay there, Joe. I'll just be a minute. Joe tried to distract himself in the car when he saw a customer coming out of the waiting room with a cigarette in his mouth. <gasps> He casually flicked his cigarette onto the ground near the door and the wind picked it up and it bounced across the floor and it's like Joe saw it in slow motion. And one minute, everything was normal and calm. And the next minute, the car that Joe's dad was under blew up in flames. Joe watched in horror as the orange flames just took over the entire place. He was trapped inside of his dad's car, outside of the car shop, and he's screaming, Dad, Dad! The car had been lifted into the air from the explosion oh and plopped onto the side like some action movie. And there Joe could see his dad covered in orange flames, running around the garage, oh and his screams were warping. Like, they were raw screams of pain and terror and panic, and Joe could hear every single second of it. The movement was making the fire burn faster and faster because of the oxygen, and it was burning with more intensity, and William... The dad's co-workers rushed out of the office and they watched in horror. Some of them were frozen. Some were trying to help. One of them was trying to get the fire extinguisher to work, but he couldn't get it. It was jammed. And that man that tried to get the fire extinguisher to work, later he would take his own life. So to little Joe in the car, he felt like nobody was helping his dad. Did they find who the hell threw the cigarette? Yeah, but I don't think they could do anything. A couple weeks ago, we were out with their sister. We were in line. There was a big-ass trash can in front of us, right? With bags and bags of trash uh-huh. on the sidewalk. And someone just walked over and threw a cigarette. <gasps> that was still on. Just He just tossed it in there. How come I didn't see that? Oh, wow. I was like, I was sitting there. The way he did it was so casual. <sighs> without even a thought that I was sitting there thinking, did I saw that right? Because... There was no regard. He just walked by right in front of all these people standing there. Oh he just plopped his cigarette in there. That's still going. 
What is wrong with people? The way that they just put out cigarettes. We talked about the other one, the other case. Remember they they put out the cigarette into the this was a this was a YouTube video, but they put out a cigarette into the trash can and later after the restaurant closed, that thing burst into flames. Mm-hmm. Like nobody knew it wasn't instant. It was way later. So finally a neighbor comes over and uh, throws him onto the floor beats the flames off of him. An ambulance pulls up and Joe could see his dad on the ground. His whole body was black and charred and he was convulsing. He was going into shock. Joe finally freed himself from the car, ran straight to his dad where he felt someone's adult hands grab him, cover his eyes and pull him away. Joe said he didn't get to see his dad close up, but he would never forget the smell. The smell of burned flesh. And then the ambulances came and they took him away. Joe's dad was like his best friend, his guardian angel, like his whole world. I mean, to be fair, a lot of boys think that. A lot of boys look up to their dad. And therefore, when they're, you know, when boys are young and they're as tall as the kitchen counter and these big towering dads with muscles can reach the top shelf and hammer things together, it's giving superhero. It's like the three stages of life, they say. First stage, you realize your parents aren't superhuman. Second stage, you realize you're not superhuman. Third stage, you realize your kids are not superhuman. But Joe's case was a little bit different. Joe's dad literally was his Superman. The two were attached at the hip, and if they weren't, Joe would inevitably end up needing stitches, or he would have a black eye that had swollen his entire eye shut. You're like, wow, Joe's a troublemaker. No, it's not because Joe was an irresponsible kid that liked to get into trouble and hurt himself. There was a villain in this story. It was Joe's own mom. She love-hated her husband, loved William, hated him because he didn't love her back, and purely hated Joe because her husband loved their son more than he loved her. So every day, Joe would rush to be with his dad, go to work at the car mechanic shop with him, and he would spend all day just watching him in awe, fixing these cars, teaching Joe about cars, tools. It was the only time that Joe felt safe and content. Well, that and when he was at Marie's house. Marie was like his mom, except she wasn't. And she wasn't his dad's wife, okay? Yikes. She was the mistress. But she was a better mom than his biological mom would ever be. He felt maternal love from her. She was this warm, loving, compassionate person. Sometimes Joe would even slip up and call Marie mom. And her eyes would go wide with shock. And she would tell him, you can't ever call me that again, okay? You have to call me Auntie Marie. It wasn't because she was mean. It wasn't because she didn't want to be his mom. She was just terrified. They all were. Of Leslie, Joe's mom. This is my favorite way to unwind at the end of a long day. I make myself some hot chocolate. I wrap up in my coziest blanket and I become Detective June Parkett. I don't actually become a detective, but that's how I feel when I'm playing June's journey. You play as June, and the story starts with you flying from London to New York to investigate the suspicious murder of your sister and brother-in-law. But that's just the first in a very long line of suspicious murders. There's so many family secrets, twists, and you get to uncover all of these mysteries through a series of hidden objects games. Like you search for hidden letters or other objects that help you advance in the story. The storytelling in this game is impeccable. I mean, every Every detail is important. It stimulates you because you feel like a detective. The game takes June literally all around the world, from New York to Havana to Paris, and you get to meet all kinds of characters. I do not trust any new characters at this point because everybody seems to have a hidden motive. And as the story is progressing, you can learn about new characters as you collect bits of information to build your photo album. 
I also really love the dialogue in this game and just how immersive it is. There are some scenes where you really feel like you are Detective June. There's mystery, murder, danger, even romance. Sometimes it does get a little intense, so if I feel like taking a break from all the crazy plot twists, I go back to my little private island. Okay, it's not little, it's actually huge. It's called Orchid Island, and I get to decorate it in any way that I want. I have a waterfall on my island, and I'm currently making a train station route. There's just something so satisfying about getting to color code everything and make sure all the pieces fit. It's such a cozy yet thrilling game. It's almost as satisfying as puzzling the pieces of June's family's mysteries together because, listen, I'm telling you, my husband will definitely find me on the couch later today playing June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. My dogs will eat anything. I mean, I have two Frenchies and it's a daily struggle to keep them from trying to eat toilet paper, bees, even trash. My dogs have no idea what's good for them. And you know, that's okay because their job is to be cute. My job is to take care of them to the best of my ability. That is why I only buy the farmer's dog dog food. Think about it. Most dog foods claims it's made out of whole ingredients. But then why does it come in the form of these very crusty pellets? But dogs will eat anything you give them, even dry kibble. Most dog food claims that they're made out of whole ingredients. But when I stare at these dry kibbles, it's very hard for me to see the whole ingredients. And I always had to mix in bone broth or water because it would be so dry that my dogs would eat too quickly and they would hack it up. It just didn't look tasty. The farmer's dog believes that all dogs deserve to eat real fresh food. Food. That's why Farmer's Dog Dog Food is made from whole wheat and veggies and gently cooked in human-grade kitchens to preserve nutritional value. It makes me feel so good seeing my dog's little tails wagging. Sometimes Mango's entire butt will shake when it's time for their dinner because they know and I know that they're eating fresh, healthy food. It genuinely looks like human food. I've noticed such an improvement in how shiny and soft their coat is and their breath doesn't teleport me into another dimension anymore. I can see the veggies in their food. I mean, my dog always gains a little bit of weight this time last year just because they move around less when it gets a little bit colder. So I feel like it's very important to always watch portions in the winter months. The farmer's dog makes it easy to monitor my dog's portions. Our dog's meals arrive in pre-portioned, ready-to-serve packs, which is super convenient. All you need to do is tell the farmer's dog about your puppy or your dog, and they'll deliver personalized, vet-developed recipes for as little as $2 a day. And you can adjust the recipe selection, portion sizes, and delivery cadence according to your needs and schedule. Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. That's 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. Leslie was something. Okay, that's a nice way of putting it. She knew Marie. Somehow she always knew about everything, okay? And one time, she dragged a little Joe from Marie's house while William, the dad, was at work, and she brought Joe home, screamed at him, smacked him around, and when she wasn't satisfied, her eyes went crazy. She grabbed his tiny little hand and made him touch it flat up against the hot iron till he felt like the first layer of his skin was going to melt off. Finally, she let him go and his body flew to the other side of the room. He had snot and tears streaming down his face when William, the dad, came home and he screamed at her. Look what you're doing to him. He's terrified of you. His own mother. Leslie was down for a good screaming match. In fact, it was her forte. It's not me. It's you. It's you and your whore have turned him against me. What the fuck did you do to his hand? Oh, he touched the iron. He was messing around as per usual. Yeah, and what about the bruises on his face? How do you explain that, Leslie? He fell over. Joe didn't care who his dad believed. Joe just wanted to get out of there. He kept pleading, Dad, can we please leave? And the two would storm out into Dad's car and drive off to the hospital to get his wound patched up. 
look, I get it. The whole dynamic is super confusing. She's a child abuser. He's a cheater. What's going on? And why is Joe being brought into all of these messes? The Peter family was not a normal family. It like does not have your normal fairy tale origins. Not that most families that we talk about do here, but this one is especially strange. So William, the dad, this is when he's young, had a best friend named Frank. Frank had a girlfriend named Marie. That's how William met Marie. And Marie had a best friend named Leslie. Wow. So uh, one day, William and Frank are like, let's go to a big party. And of course, Frank was going to bring his girlfriend, Marie. And Marie invited her girl best friend, Leslie. Now, it gets confusing, but bear with me. William and Marie were in love, but Frank is William's best friend and how they met. So neither of them wanted to go through with this attraction that they had for each other. They just kind of danced around it. They had these shared looks. They had these glances. They, They tried to stay cordial for Frank's sake, but it was all getting too much. So the day at the party, William saw Marie's best friend, Leslie, who was drunk and hitting on him, having no clue that she was stepping into a love triangle that was literally on the brink of exploding any second now. She starts hitting on William. I mean, she probably thought it was a stellar idea. Like, how cute. This is the best friend of my best friend's boyfriend. Imagine all the cute double dates. And at first, William wanted to turn down her advances, but then he thought, you know what? Maybe this is the push that we need. Maybe this is the push that Marie needs. William was down to get together with her and tell Frank the truth, but she was the one that was a little bit more hesitant. So he's thinking, okay, I'm going to make Marie a little bit jealous, and then she's going to come running to me, and then we're going to tell Frank everything. And this is what I need to do. Besides, he was watching Marie and Frank at the party together and he was just starting to feel jealous. Maybe he could make Marie jealous by flirting with Leslie. Now, he clearly wasn't thinking straight, but one thing led to another. Bada bing, bada boom. Two months later, Leslie is pregnant with William's child. And his whole plan had blown up in his face. William was never in love with Leslie. He loved Marie and he would never stop loving her. He did decide, though... That he dug his grave and he needed to lie in it. He proposed to Leslie out of respect and the two got married. They were pregnant with Joe Peters. Well, it wasn't after till they got married, which is like, what, within three months of meeting each other? Leslie is like, by the way, I have three other kids. He's like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Yeah, three kids. I'm sure at first William tried to be a faithful husband and man, but as time went on, it was harder and harder to resist his one true love, Marie, and like things aren't working well with Leslie. So one night he decided it's time. He went over to Marie's while Frank was at work and they had this passionate love affair. And while they were doing it, Frank decided to come home early. He catches his wife and his best friend in bed together. I mean, he was speechless, literally couldn't even string together the curse words. He turned, you turned out of there. William runs after him, pulling up his pants, which like, God, if it ever gets there, just don't do the rushed pulling on the pants saying it's not what you think. I just think it makes it so much worse. No, he ran after his best friend, Frank, and there was just no going back now. Their friendship was ruined. They got into a literal physical altercation on the street. They had to be pulled apart by neighbors. And later, Frank assaulted Marie. And everyone in the neighborhood, in their friend group, in their community, they had found out what happened, including Leslie, William's pregnant wife, the mother of his child, Joe. She was publicly humiliated, but she wasn't going to let him go. Especially not now. Why would she do that? Why would she let him go so that he can have his happily ever after with Marie? No. 
She channeled all that pain, all that betrayal, all that hurt and anger, and she vowed to make his life miserable until the day that he died. And she did exactly that. And since the day that Joe was born, William would be super busy, shielding Joe from the abuses of his mom, but also super busy bouncing from Leslie and Marie. Joe is certain that if he wasn't accidentally conceived, William would have married Marie and they would have stayed together and been happy, which Joe says is an odd feeling. He said, I was there. I was the reason that everything changed for the worse. Now, Joe was like a mini William since the day that he was born. He looked like him, talked like him. He looked up to William more than anything. And that just pissed off Leslie. She had suffered all that humiliation and hormones for what? A mini freaking William? She hates William. Why would she want a mini William? And to make it worse, Joe was the center of William's world. He loved him more than anything. And inevitably, since Leslie saw Joe as more of William's mini-me rather than her own literal child that she birthed, she started to use Joe to get back at William, to hurt William. She would do absolutely insane things, like dangle him out of the window of the second story to threaten William. He would be red in the face screaming, don't drop him. She would shout out the window, do you want to take the little bastard or not? And the next thing Joe would hear is the front door slam open, heavy footsteps pounding up and him being whirled back to earth safely on the second floor. His face would be red from all the blood that had just rushed to his head. And this was one of the very few occasions that William had ever gotten physical with a woman. He hit Leslie. They both tapped out at the end of the fight. Leslie had a busted lip and William had two black eyes. Yeah, Joe could have died that day. For what? because Leslie was sick and twisted and evil and jealous. But she wasn't done. After William stormed out of the house with Joe, she immediately called the police and started telling them the most passionate sob story of how she was just trying to take care of their son while William was out sleeping around with all these different whores. And when she asked for help, he hit her and busted her lip. She played the part of the innocent victim. And so he became the brutal, violent man in the eyes of the police. And for a while, William would cut off Marie just to make Leslie happy. But they were like star-crossed lovers. They would always find a way back to each other. But oddly enough, William also found time to be with Leslie because apparently when things were good, they were good. Leslie ended up giving birth to two more children with William. Ellie and Thomas. For some reason, Ellie was Leslie's favorite. Maybe it's because she's the only daughter of the family. Her three previous kids were all sons. Ellie's her favorite, her little angel. She never wanted to hurt Ellie. Thomas was treated better than Joe, but he was still treated pretty badly. It's weird, though. It's like Leslie had a special place in her heart that was filled with just pure hatred for her own son, Joe. But I did read that with toxic narcissistic parents, they single out one child to bully. Not because the child did anything wrong or the child is less special than the others, but just straight up because every evil person, for some reason, much must have like an arch nemesis. Like a scapegoat, right? Yeah. Even if it's your own child, it's like in the family family structure, you need to have one person that you hate. And because Leslie took it out the worst on Joe, William was always with Joe. Maybe Joe was his favorite. Maybe he felt like if he didn't attach to the other two kids, Leslie wouldn't bully them because she Mm -hmm. felt like they were her kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to say. But one thing was clear. Every single day that passed, the more Leslie hated her own son, Joe. And William couldn't take it anymore. He filed for divorce. And Leslie went out there and put the show of our life on. She told everyone how abandoned she felt, taking care of six children all by herself. Meanwhile, her husband is out there fucking anything that moves. Yeah, that's how she made it seem. 
And while the divorce was in motion, Marie got freaking pregnant with William's child. And it just added an entire container of salt into Leslie's open wound. And Leslie was something else. She would show up at Marie's house and physically beat her up knowing that Marie is like heavily pregnant. Something about Leslie, when she was mad, she had this crazy superhuman strength. Joe said it was like she's possessed by demons. He, How does a rather petite woman have that level of strength? It didn't even make sense. But it led to Joe, Marie, William, and even William's sister Melissa... Joe's aunt on his dad's side, always looking over their shoulders wherever they went. You just never knew when Leslie would pop out and pop you in the face. Like she would just pounce on you. Side note, Melissa, the aunt, she would even watch um, Joe while William was at work so that Joe wouldn't be alone with Leslie. And this pissed off Leslie. She felt like Melissa was conspiring against her to let William cheat on her. In her mind, it was a whole conspiracy. And she was the ultimate victim. She wasn't the one pushing people away with her, I don't know, child abuse. She was the ultimate victim and she was really sour about it. So much so that in a fit of anger and maybe a desperate attempt to get William to pay attention to her, Leslie threw the youngest child, Thomas, into a hot scalding bath he was hospitalized for weeks and needed endless skin grafts which normally wouldn't social workers get involved well leslie played the part perfectly she told them that thomas had grabbed a pot from the stove that had water poured it all over himself she was beside herself she felt so much pain and guilt and shame and disappointment in herself she was disgusted with herself and the nurses all sat around it's okay it's not your fault you know kids do the darnest things i mean insane while thomas was in the hospital leslie had the nerve to show up constantly at william's place of work screaming at william about how abusive he is while the customers you know they're watching in shock and she's crying throwing a fit and she would randomly crouch down look at joe and with a sick just a sickly sweet voice she would say come to mommy as if she expected him to joyfully run into her arms i mean this lady is out of her mind it got to the point where william was backed into a corner and you know, most of the guys working at the garage, they were guys. None of them were willing to forcibly remove Leslie from the premises. I mean, imagine the scene that she would make. She's a total Karen. She'd be screaming, he touched me, he touched me, he's trying to kill me. William would have to call his sister Melissa to come and drag her out. Melissa was willing to do anything for her brother. It seemed like everyone was willing to do anything for William. Melissa would come charging down the street and she would pull Leslie by the hair, kicking her with all her strength. Okay, Melissa was a strong woman, quite literally the only woman that could take down Leslie. So it got to the point where Leslie was getting her ass beat so hard, even just at the sight of Melissa, she would run off. Let's go. Wow. But it, it wasn't good for business, though power but nobody wanted like a wmme fight in the parking lot of a business and eventually william's boss told him yeah get it together or i'm gonna have to let you go so it was on his best behavior on a cold windy day in february he got ready for work and brought joe in like he always did just in case leslie showed up at marie's and it was the day that joe would never forget it was the day that his dad died and he watched the whole thing is that when he start stopped talking no Oh. Yeah. So remember how Thomas had been burned in the past? Well, Joe thought it was going to be like that. His dad was going to be at the hospital for a few weeks. Joe would be sad and scared that his protector was gone, but eventually things would go back to normal. Now, obviously, that's not what happened. Joe was with Marie at the time, and she wasn't even allowed into the hospital. Sure, William filed for divorce, but Leslie was still next of kin. 
And finally, one day, Marie came up to Joe and sat him down and said, Joe, sweetie, sometimes when people are badly hurt, they die and they go to heaven to be with God. It's a beautiful place and they can look down on everyone that they love and they watch out for them from up there. Joe was like, okay, that's very cool, but when's daddy coming home? It would be three days till Joe was finally allowed in the hospital with Marie. William was lying on a hospital bed, completely bandaged up. Just all sorts of tubes coming out of his body. It didn't even look like William to little Joe. He refused to believe that was his dad. It was an uncomfortable situation. Joe was told to say goodbye to his dad. He's five. He doesn't understand death. Maria's standing next to him, trying to stay strong. And across the hospital bed is Leslie glaring at the two of them and wiping her tears because the nurse is in the room. The minute that the nurse left, Leslie was back to her disgusting self. What the fuck are you doing here? He's my husband, not yours. Marie stayed quiet. Leslie gloated. The doctors told me there's no way he's going to pull through. They think it's time to turn the machines off. But the final decision is up to me because I'm his wife and not just some whore. Marie cried, please, Leslie, there might be a chance. Just don't give up hope. She laughed. He was no good as a husband before and he's certainly no good to me now. It's like Leslie was getting off on her power over Marie. She said, I'm his legal wife. You're just his whore. I make the decisions around here and I say, turn him off. And with that, Marie was forced to leave the hospital without Joe and without William. The police were called and there was nothing Marie could legally do. Joe was Leslie's. No matter how dangerous Leslie was, the police didn't care. They thought she was a victim, a grieving widow who found out her husband was cheating on her. So you would think that Leslie would care about Joe's feelings and grief after watching his dad die. I mean, at the end of the day, this is her own flesh and blood. She gave birth to this child. This is her son. No. She got down eye level with him and was like, hey, your daddy is dead now and he's not coming back. He's fucking dead. Do you know what that means? Has he gone to heaven? No, he's gone to hell where all the nasty people go. God said that he was no good. So now his body is going to be turned into ashes. You know, it was God who threw the cigarette in the gas to burn your daddy to ashes. And just... Don't think you're anything special because you were daddy's favorite. And just because you saw him go up in fucking flames, you're not special at all. You're nothing. And I'm going to prove it to you. Just you fucking wait. She's saying this to a five-year-old child that happens to be her five-year-old child. Joe didn't have to wait to find out. He found out what his life was going to be like the second he got back home. I mean, it was just a blur of abuse. So he had three older brothers. Um, they were his half-siblings. And there was Wally, the oldest, who was nearly 18 now. And then the twins, Larry and Barry. They weren't actually twins. They're like a year apart. But they're literally just evil little henchmen twins. I just see them as little twins with little devil horns. It's like they happen to share one brain cell between the two of them. Larry and Barry did whatever their mommy told them to do. And they took pleasure in it. They were just as sick as she was. Now, don't get me wrong. She would beat them too. But they liked to take their anger out on the younger siblings. Wally, the oldest son, not so much. He knew what happened in their house wasn't normal. He knew it was sick and twisted, but he was too scared to stand up to his mom. So in front of his mom, he was mean to Joe because he didn't want to get beat up. But the minute that she was gone, she was he was nice to Joe. The first punishment that Joe had to get used to was eating under the glass breakfast table. He wasn't allowed to sit at the table. So the family would sit around. They fed him scraps like a dog. 
That was just how most of his meals were fed to him growing up. He would sit under the glass table, staring up at them, staring at the food that he craved while his stomach rumbled. And whenever they were, quote, generous enough to throw him scraps, they would take the bottom of their dirty shoe and dig their heel into the food so it was basically smashed onto the dirty tile. And if they were feeling extra sick, they would force Joe to lick it off the ground. Sometimes they would even spit on the glob of food before making him lick it off the ground with no utensils. Leslie would scream at him, you inherited the dirty disease from your filthy fucking father and I don't want you infecting the rest of us. I mean, just imagine how damaging this type of punishment is to anybody but someone that young and impressionable. And Joe was only ever allowed to wear his undies at home. That was it. Leslie said he didn't deserve to wear his clothes at home. He wasn't allowed to bathe unless somebody was coming over and they would have to pretend to be the perfect family. Or Joe had to go outside somewhere, which was almost never. Which I never understand not bathing as a punishment. Because isn't it even more painful for people around him too? Like, is it just, you're so evil that you don't even mind yourself being in pain? If that can inflict somebody else an ounce of pain? It's so bizarre to me. Side note, William's funeral was a whole situation of its own. Marie was paying for the whole thing because Leslie refused to pay for it. So Marie was paying for it and the only thing was she was allowed to go. But Joe wasn't allowed to attend. So Marie was attending as like a friend of William's. But Joe wasn't allowed because Leslie couldn't risk Joe clinging to Marie in front of everyone. So she came up with some excuse about how he was so traumatized he couldn't make it. Which is true. He was traumatized, but she didn't care. And in those moments, Wally, the oldest son, he tried to be a good half-brother. He would whisper to Joe, don't listen to mommy. She's wrong. Your dad's gone to heaven, not hell. Which, side note, you would think that a house like this, I don't know, you were probably envisioning a mess. Like, that's what I was envisioning. Like, a hoarder's house type of situation. But it wasn't. Leslie was freaking obsessed with cleaning. That's all she did. She woke up at the crack of dawn and she cleaned and dusted every dustless surface, revacuumed every single floor every single morning. And that made things so much unbearably worse. Because if the kids so much as sat on a piece of furniture and left an imprint, not even a stain, just a pillow deflated a little because they sat on it, she would beat them an inch of their lives. She had this great big formal living room that nobody was allowed to use. Like, you're not even allowed to sit on the couches. The kids were not allowed to sit on basically any furniture but the floor. It was ridiculous. Why even have the furniture? It doesn't make sense to me. And this just added to Leslie being the victim in everyone's eyes. I mean, look at this amazing mother. Look at this widow. Look at how clean she keeps her home. She cares so much even though her husband is gone and she's got six kids. And then it happened. After beating after beating, being thrown against the wall, choked, punched in the face, head, stomach, arms, legs, Joe tried to talk and his tongue started stumbling. He had never experienced this before. He was kind of terrified. He realized that every time he tried to talk, he would stutter. And the more he tried, the more he would stutter. Wally was the first to notice and he went to his mom. Mom, I'm worried about Joe. I think there's something wrong with him. Yeah, what's fucking wrong now, huh? He's not talking, mom. Well, he probably has an infection or something. Get out of here. A week later, Joe still wasn't talking and his stutter started getting worse. And by the end of the week, Joe felt odd. His brain felt completely out of control over his voice. He couldn't even form a single word. He couldn't even control the sounds that were coming out. So he could make noises. His vocal cords were fine, but he had no control over what kind of noises he made. 
So there was a disconnect. He couldn't even form a single word. There was no yes, no help, nothing. Leslie thought that he was trying to get attention, but after torturing him extensively and realizing that he still wasn't talking, she realized, oh my God, I got to do something about it. So they went to the doctor where Leslie had the perfect mom explanation. She wiped her tears from the corners, corners of her eyes. She's a widow with six kids. Joe had seen his father die. He was traumatized and now he won't talk. She just wants to help him. Her voice would break while talking and explaining, and the doctor looked at her sympathetically. You know, they were just very, very close. Joe took it really, really hard. Well, Mrs. Peters, I believe Joe has been struck mute from the shock of what he's witnessed. Yeah, well, you know, William was such a good husband, good father, and it's such a tragedy. How long will it be before he can talk again and go back to his normal, happy self? Ma'am, it could be a short-term condition, or it could be long-term. We just have to see and... See how it develops. Well, I'll try my best. And with that, Leslie went home happier than ever. Sure, she was annoyed because now Joe could only communicate by, quote, pointing and grunting, as she would say. But at least he could never tell on her for being abusive. He was completely in her power. Completely. But for Joe, it was a nightmare. For nearly five years, he would never speak a single word. And being unable to communicate, even when you can communicate, it's frustrating and annoying and it's traumatizing to go through what he's going through. But when you can't verbalize how you feel or tell anyone about it, I mean, it just got so bad. And so Joe would start acting out once in a while. And that solidified to the police that Leslie was the amazing widower with this troubled child. She was the victim, and now that William was gone, Joe was the new villain. Someone had to take his place. Living in a house like this was just sick. It wasn't just Joe suffering. Leslie would gather all the kids in the formal living room and they would push the furniture to the sides. And Leslie would order the kids to wrestle each other in front of her while she laughed like a cheerleader, like she was watching, I don't know, a boxing fight. Yeah, and she would never let them go easy on each other. She said that they had to keep going until somebody bled. And then the one that was bleeding would be dragged out by the other siblings and a new one would fight the champion. She said it was her way of toughening them up for the real world. Do you think the real world is easy and simple and you can, I don't know, talk out your feelings? Absolutely not. This lady just had sick bloodlust, that's all, really. And this was her having fun. Imagine when she's pissed, like it was bad. She would grab Thomas, who's like, what, five at the time? She would grab her youngest son by the legs, swing him around, and let go when he slammed up against the wall and fell to the floor. It's like her strength was superhuman. But for Joe, it was still different. Thomas and these other kids, they had to do something to warrant her wrath. But for Joe, even him just existing, him just sitting there would send her off into this rageful fury. Maybe he had his dad's mannerisms. Maybe he looked like his dad. Or maybe just the idea of his existence reminded her of Marie and William. Even though this isn't even Marie's child, it's her child. She birthed him. She didn't care. Even when he didn't talk because he couldn't anymore, she still found reason to beat him up. She would say, are you mocking me by whimpering? Or he would point at something and she'd be like, stop fucking pointing and would beat him up. Joe learned very quickly that it was smartest to not even look at his mom. He felt like a hated animal who had his head kicked and punched almost at every opportunity, not just by his mom, but his older brothers, Larry and Barry as well. They realized the more sadistic that they were with Joe, the more their mom would praise them. The worst part, though, like a lot of captives say, was the boredom. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Joe wasn't allowed any toys or anything stimulating. He wasn't allowed to touch anything. So all day, every day, he just sat there staring at the window or staring at the wall. He was heavily understimulated. He couldn't even talk. He couldn't sing. He couldn't really keep his mind on anything. And he just felt isolated and frustrated. He didn't even have a mattress or a pillow to sleep with at night. Just a single unwashed thin blanket and he would sleep on the floor of his brother's room. But even then, Larry and Barry hated sharing their bedroom floor with Joe. And soon enough, due to his stench, which like whose fault is that? Leslie decided her son was going to have to live in the tiny little cupboard under the stairs. In the basement. So literally like Harry Potter, but worse because it was in the basement. It was dark, there was no light inside, just a tiny filthy mattress, spiders crawling everywhere, the cold concrete floor, and just pure darkness. Joe was constantly in just his underwear, and this is where he would live for the next three years, trapped in this tiny little cell. He could barely move around. For some reason, even though Joe never showed up for school, no social worker, no teacher took notice. Aunt Melissa was chased away from Leslie after William died. So nobody, nobody had heard from Joe and nobody cared to call the police or do something about it. But Joe existed because Marie was getting government assistance for taking care of Joe and her other kids. So he was there on the record. But there was no record of him at school. So why did that not ring any alarms? Nobody cared to find out what was going on with him. So he just laid there, day in, day out, trying to hold his urine as best as possible. There was no bathroom. Sometimes he wouldn't be let out for a full day, and there were so many times he genuinely worried and wondered, is this how I'm going to die? Of hunger and thirst? Larry and Barry would bring one water bottle to last three to four days, and most of the time they would superglue the lid shut, or they would fill it with some oil or something nasty. Why did they superglue it? Because Joe wasn't strong enough to open the lid then, so he would have to chew through the plastic with his teeth to drink water. Which it wasn't easy, and it wasn't painless, because Joe's teeth were super, super weak due to malnutrition. So any sign of stress, I mean, they would just fall out. As for food, Larry and Barry would typically bring it down to the cellar in a dog bowl and they would usually spit on it first or throw it on the ground to stomp on it or they would have salt and peppered it so much it was basically inedible. They just always looked for new ways to be sadistic and evil. Sometimes Joe would wet himself from the trauma or just holding his bladder in for too long and Leslie would take his underpants so that he was completely naked and freezing down there. When Leslie came down to take her anger out on him, Literally, she kept him down there as like a punching bag, and she would just shit talk William. I mean, how does someone have so much never-ending disgusting rage in their heart? I don't get it. It doesn't even make sense. 
She would punch Joe while screaming, your father was a rotten man, a rotten fucking husband, and you're just as fucking bad as him, and he's in hell. Every time I look at you, it reminds me of him. You're a no good little bastard, and I fucking hate you. If I had a gun, I would shoot you dead. You're the child of a deceitful, cheating, dead bastard. Hey, Joe, speak if you want me to stop. So when Joe was alone, he would cry and pray in his mind. I'm a good boy, God. Please take me and let me be with dad. Sometimes he would sit there and fantasize about how he would have these nice parents that loved him and they would live this nice, happy life. And he would be jerked out of the fantasies because he was lying in his own filth in a dark freezing cellar and his stomach was painfully hungry. Finally, Joe was given a bucket to defecate in, and sometimes he was left alone for so long that the bucket would be completely full when someone came down. Wally seemed to be the only one that would come and empty it for him. Wally was the only reason Joe believes he didn't lose his mind during those years. Wally was just as terrified of Leslie, his own mother, but he knew what she was doing was evil. Whenever Leslie was out, he would sneak down there, sit on the mattress to read to Joe. Joe never said anything, but... Now as an adult, he realizes how thoughtful Wally was because all the stories that Wally would tell Joe or all the books that he read him had to do about boys becoming heroes in the face of adversity. Maybe that was Wally's way of giving him hope. He would encourage Joe and say things like, you're nearly seven now, Joe. It's time for you to be brave, okay? Wally was the only reason Joe's language skills stayed somewhat intact. Nobody ever talked to Joe unless they were cursing at him. And he wasn't able to talk. He had no education. He didn't go to school. He was in a vacuum. He had nothing, no books to read, no TV to listen to, no radio. Wally was the only one that could teach him. Even though it was super limited, it was something. And every time they heard their mom come, Wally would try to leave, but Joe would grab onto him tight because Joe is scared, okay? He doesn't want to be alone again. And Wally would turn around rushed, but he would try to be as nice as possible. You don't want your brother getting in trouble, do you? You've got to let me go, Joe. And with that, Joe would be alone in the cold dark again. And if Wally was ever caught, which he was a few times, like bringing food down, he tried to explain to Joe, if mom thinks I'm being nice to you, she's not going to let me come see you anymore. And then I can't help you. That's why I have to be mean to you when they're around. Side note, one time Wally was caught trying to bring cake down for Joe and uh, Leslie was like, what the fuck are you doing with that? And he lied. It's nothing. I was going to eat them in front of Joe and I was just going to tease him, you know? She didn't believe him and he was beaten for it and Joe could hear it all. And then the day came. Wally got a girlfriend and Joe was young. He didn't know what that meant at the time. In fact, he thought it was kind of gross. Like, ew, who wants a girlfriend? But soon he realized that Wally's visits would be fewer and fewer. And then one day, Wally told him that he was moving out. Obviously, Joe felt pain and grief. But he was thankful for Wally. And he couldn't say that he wouldn't have done the same thing if he was Wally. That was the last time he would ever see Wally. What? Ever? But, yeah. And then one day out of nowhere, Joe was brought upstairs, cleaned up, put in clothes. Apparently, the whole family was being summoned to be introduced to mommy's new boyfriend. And she wanted all the kids to call him daddy, which is weird because they hadn't even met him yet. And in walks their uncle, Melissa's husband. William's sister's husband. What? Yeah, everyone was confused. And when Leslie punched Thomas in the face for not wanting to call him daddy, it was clear that this daddy was no savior. His name was Amani, and he didn't care that Joe was being kept naked in a dark hole. Joe had no idea what was going on. 
But he later found out that this was his mom's big plan to get revenge on Melissa. Steal her husband. What? Joe had hoped that Amani would see how he was living. He would go home, tell Aunt Melissa, and she would come and save him. That's what he thought. But the reality was not that. In fact, Amani would be his first rapist. Oh, my God. Amani was the type of man that could have sex with anything or anyone he could. And he lied to Aunt Melissa. He was seeing Leslie behind her back. He loved to come over because for him... There was a special prisoner downstairs that couldn't say no to him that he could rape without anyone caring. Of course, he tested the waters, I'm sure. And once he realized that Leslie would not freak out if he raped Joe, he made his move. At first, Amani would lay next to Joe on the mattress, whispering in his ear that he was a good boy while rubbing himself against him. At first, Joe tried to tell him to stop, that he didn't like it, and he just screamed at him, Don't say no to me, boy. Grabbed his private parts gave them a harsh twist, and it was incredibly painful. Joe was terrified to ever say no again. And after each assault, he would turn and say, if you tell anyone about this, I will stab your eyes out and chop off your willy. And then he would leave Joe in the dark cold again. Soon the rubbing escalated to forcing Joe to perform sex acts on him. And if you thought Leslie had any morals, you'd be wrong, because sometimes Leslie was there, forcing Joe to do what she told him like she would dictate what he needed to do to her boyfriend slash joe's uncle leslie would beat joe while amani assaulted him and they would both laugh when they were done and called joe a dirty bastard before walking out leaving him in the cold dark and soon it was pretty clear that leslie was willing to do anything to make amani happy she started coming downstairs before amani would come to clean the toilet bucket to spray air freshener for amani to her son i mean just think about it she's prepping the room to make it more enjoyable for someone who is raping her child sometimes amani would drag joe upstairs to assault him in the bathroom and joe would see a mirror for the first time in years and he said that he was shocked he looked like a pile of bones he looked haunted amani would come to see him every day and it wasn't long until he started raping him and Joe would be in so much pain. He would be shaking and almost convulsing in pain afterwards, but nobody cared. Imagine the mental torture of being stuck with that. I mean, even when you can verbally speak, you're not believed. I mean, it's hard to speak out. But what if you physically can't speak? You can't sign. You can't write. It, it, how would you communicate this to anybody? How would you communicate the level of torture, the mental, emotional, physical, sexual torture that you've been put through every single day? From five years old to eight years old, Joe was in the cellar. And literally nobody noticed that a full child had disappeared off the face of the earth. Everyone else went to school except for Joe. Nobody even realized he was gone. Nobody came looking for him. Until one day, Thomas was at school, and he mentioned to his teacher that he had a fourth older brother. Now, his teacher knew Wally, Larry, and Barry, and just out of curiosity and not really that curious, he was just like, oh, well, do you know your brother's name? What's your brother's name? My brother's name is Joe. Okay, well, what school does Joe go to? Oh, he doesn't go to school. So what went from a light conversation turned alarming, and the teacher went to the school board about it, and they decided to call Leslie in. And there she was, the perfect mom. Yes, Jojo. Uh, Joe has problems. He's mute and he's very disruptive. He's a problem child. Well, why haven't you enrolled him in the school? Like I said, he's quite destructive. I couldn't inflict him on the other children. No one can control Joe. No one. But he's my Joe. He's just, you know, he saw his daddy die, you know? 
Okay, Leslie, but we're going to need to come out and the social worker needs to meet Joe, if that's all right with you. Yes, of course, of course. So Joe was pulled out of the cellar, washed up and threatened before the social worker came. Leslie yelled at Joe for just shaking in fear. And when the doorbell rang, Joe's head spun. His mom had transformed into a new woman. Like the way she was talking, the way she told stories of Joe and his disturbances, Joe even started to question his own reality. I mean, she sounded so confident. Even he had to question whether or not he knew the real truth. But Joe did something that day that would cement the way social workers looked at him, which is the social worker's fault, not his. He was terrified, he was scared, he didn't know how to react, he hadn't been socialized, he was angry, frustrated. This was his cry for help, and nobody took it. In fact, the social workers' minds confirmed to them that Leslie was telling the truth. They were dealing with a troubled boy. Because Joe bit the social worker's hand and wouldn't let go. I do see what you mean, Leslie, but I'm afraid he must go to school. It's the law. There's a lot we can do to help him and to help you, but he must. I know, it's just... You know, for him, seeing his dad burst into flames, it just did something to him, and that's why he's so disturbed. He's a terribly fussy eater, too. That's why he's so thin and sickly looking. He won't eat anything, and he's become so malnourished, and his teeth have rotted. Yes, yes, we know, Leslie, okay? You're a good mother, but you've messed up keeping him home, trying to deal with all of this on your own. We can help you. That's what we're here for. You need to trust us to do the best thing for him and for you and for the rest of your family. And that's how Joe was admitted into school with a note that he was a very disturbed and aggressive child. And all the teachers started treating him like one without ever questioning why. And sure, Joe was out of the cellar now, but he was still forced under the table to eat scraps. And if he thought he was going to make friends at school, he was wrong because kids are sometimes more cruel than adults. On weekends, Joe was back in the cellar. And at least in the cellar, he knew that he was out of sight. And most of the time, he hoped out of sight, out of mind. It was harder for him upstairs. He had to make himself small to blend in, to disappear. But they always found a reason to beat him. The only exception now was that they wouldn't be able to beat his face just in case the teachers saw. Also, this is when Barry and Larry started raping Joe. <gasps> no. Um, apparently, Larry and Barry had been engaged in incest with one another, using each other to... What? Yeah, rid of their sexual urges. And now what they were the taking fuck? turns raping Joe. When they weren't raping him, Amani would drag Joe to his bed and rape him. How old are the brothers? Like 15, 16. Oh my goodness. And they never tried to hide it. Like Amani even. Like everything was done in plain view of everyone in the house. I mean, I guess nobody cared. The house carried on as if it was completely normal that full-grown men were raping an 8-year-old boy. In his own mother's bed at that. Like, things were clearly not okay in the house. And at school, there were small moments of kindness that Joe felt. Like, he loved his speech teacher. I mean, he couldn't read or write at the time. He was really behind. He had no way of communicating to adults that could potentially help him. But she was always patient. And she might be a big part of the reason why he learned to talk again. Even just being in school, though, assaulted every one of his senses. He had been in a dark cellar with no light, no distractions, no stimulation, and now he was getting hit with it all at once. I mean, it was a lot. It was overwhelming. Kids made fun of the fact that he couldn't speak. Like, they thought it was amusing. They're like, what do you mean you can't talk? They stared at him like he was a science experiment. But at least he could eat his heart out during lunch, and he could drink all the water he wanted. Joe was never allowed to learn sports, though, because, um... He wasn't allowed to change in the locker rooms in case people saw his scars. His mom made excuses that he had a weak heart. 
The occasional bruises that were called out, Leslie would explain it away by saying that the boys were always roughhousing. Nobody doubted her, not even once. And then the other assaults came. It was no longer just Larry, Barry, and Amani. There was a new man that came down to the cellar one weekend. Amani's friend, who was introduced as Uncle Douglas. He was a stumpy-looking, bald, middle-aged man who had a stink smell to him and horrible bad breath. He wanted to befriend little Joe, and Joe was nervous, he was skeptical, but the man came bearing jelly beans, and he hadn't had sweets in years. That weekend, he was starved the whole time. He eagerly ate up the jelly bean. Uncle Douglas laughed. Wow, you like that, don't you? Then passed him another one. Joe was skeptical at any adult that was nice to him, but he wasn't about to give up free jelly beans. And then another and another, and Joe realized that Uncle Douglas had a really nasty smell to him. Just really nasty, but it didn't faze him. He was used to nasty smells, and besides, he was nice. Then he asked, Joe, should we play a game? Joe was over the moon. He felt like he hadn't had this much fun since his dad passed away. So he nodded. Can I take some pictures of you to show my wife? Is that okay? Joe remembered that his dad used to take pictures of him and that filled his heart with joy and he nodded again. And the first few pictures were just Joe laying on the bed and he couldn't help but wonder if this nice smelly balding man was going to adopt him. Maybe that's why he would want to show pictures to his wife. He kind of liked the idea of it. But in between snapping pictures and giving him more jelly beans, Uncle Douglas suggested he take off more and more clothes. And it wasn't until they got to the pants that Joe's alarm bells immediately went off. And that's when it felt like the whole world stopped. And Uncle Douglas could see the shift and he laughed, don't be shy, it's just for fun. And then he threatened, don't be naughty, be a good boy or I'll call your daddy. Joe shook his head no and he felt the sting and blood come out of his mouth. Uncle Douglas had slapped him so hard he was knocked sideways. Then the door flung open and Amani joined to beat Joe into submission and he screamed at him, just can't do what you're fucking told, can you boy? You're going to learn one of these days. And with one final kick, Joe was left bleeding and naked on the floor. Later, Amani got up and peed directly on his face while laughing. Thirsty, are you? This was a turning point in Joe's life because after Uncle Douglas, more men were brought down to Joe, usually during the weekends or the holidays. If nine-year-old Joe ever resisted or put up a fight, he would be beat by grown men. All it did was delay the inevitable, which was the rape. And he'd be raped and he'd be assaulted and he'd be in more pain. One of the men that came down to beat him happened to be a police officer. The officer raped Joe and Imani triumphantly told him, if you ever go to any of my friends at the police station and tell them what goes on in here, I'm going to hear about it and I'll come back here and kill you. Do you get it? Is it actually a cop? We don't know. Joe thought if policemen were out here doing this sort of thing to children, who could even who could he even turn to? And since he couldn't speak or write, how could he even tell them anything anyway? And where was Joe's mom during all of this? She was making an LLC. No, but really, in her mind. She thought, wait a minute, I let all these men rape my child and what? I'm not going to make a dollar out of it? She decided it was time that Joe was going to go to work. Joe was confused. She kept humming around him, Joe, you're going to make me so much money. Joe, you don't get it, do you? Obviously, he didn't because kids can't make money. They can't have a job. It doesn't make sense. As he got older, he realized these men were paying Leslie to rape Joe and record it all. But in Joe's traumatized mind, he felt like, if I at least make money, maybe she'll stop hating me. Maybe she'd let me have a real room or some warm food once in a while. But it wasn't like that. 
Instead, Joe was taken to a creepy house every single weekend without fail, driven by Uncle Douglas, who would threaten him with a knife in his pocket, and if Joe tried to run, he would kill him. That's what he told him. And when he entered the musty house, where none of the windows would open, the doors were locked from the inside, Joe saw other children sitting there, mainly little boys, some little girls. All of them would have their own filthy mattress in one of the rooms, which were locked from the outside. They would get to rest. Sometimes they were made sandwiches where the bread was a little bit moldy, and they would be called into the rooms to have sex with either an adult while it was being filmed to be sold, or they would be forced into doing things with each other again to be filmed. Even the bathroom was used as some sort of sick filming location. They would force the children to do disgusting things after the forced assault. They're being taped, mind you, and they would force the children to lick their lips and smile and say they enjoyed it. Joe would do as he was told, trying to look happy, but he was always holding back tears. And then the men would tell him how filthy he was because he enjoyed it so much. They said he was a gross little boy and nasty for wanting to do things like that. Joe said he felt sick with disgust at everything, and he was terrified at what was to come. He felt like he couldn't take any more pain. But if he or the other children couldn't do as they were told or didn't or didn't do it exactly the way the disgusting adults wanted or they took too long to do it, they were dragged into a room and someone would grab their private parts and twist them until the pain was unbearable. And for the next few years, four years really, Joe would be spending most of his holidays and weekends in this house with other kids who were being raped and forced into starring in child pornography. A lot of the men that came to see the children and assault them were the same men every single weekend. They all seemed respectable. A lot of them had wedding bands. But disgustingly, they always knew what they wanted. They even knew what expressions they wanted the children to have while they did what they did, even down to how they wanted the lighting. Joe said it was disgusting. Some of the men wanted the kids to call them names like Mommy and Daddy, but they were all men. Sometimes the boys were to perform with other older girls in the house, and if they couldn't maintain an erection, they would be punished. Joe would listen to the conversations of these men, and it was clear that a lot of them had families of their own. They had children of their own. And yet here they were treating children like this. It's like, Joe said it's like they didn't even see them as children. They saw them as subhuman, and for some reason they convinced themselves that these children wanted it. And what's wild is that none of these children were kidnapped. None of them were human trafficked. None of them were abducted. They were all due to go back to school on Mondays. They were all sold by their guardians, by their parents, by their grandparents. They were sold by those that were supposed to protect them. What's crazy is that Joe felt safer in Douglas's child pornography dungeon than he did his own house because at least he could wash up here and there and he would get moldy food and he was allowed to rest once in a while if he did his job. Joe said he learned how to survive. Those years, he felt like a captive animal. And if you'd think that Joe's life was getting any better because he was bringing in money, you would be wrong. He was still beaten by his mom. For example, whenever there was a clogged toilet, his mom would force him to reach his bare hand in there to flush it down. He was treated as subhuman by his own mother and now by all of these men. And then Joe started talking again. But look, nothing changed. He was still being assaulted. The other children in the CP dungeon, I mean, they were able to verbally communicate. But Leslie, like the other parents, they had beaten these kids with so much fear and so much submission. I do think that there was a police officer involved, considering how none of the kids went to the police. 
I think when you witness something like that, I mean, who do you tell? You tell a random adult that you think you can trust, then what are they going to do? They're going to call the police. And if there's someone in the police that's raping you every weekend. And then one day in high school, Joe had a thought, a wild thought. He thought, I could just walk out of here. I could walk out of school and pretend to walk home, but not go home. I could live in the woods or something. And once that little seed, that little idea was planted in his mind, he couldn't go home that day. He could not go back to prison. So that day, without any preparation at all, he walked out of school and walked into the woods. He read survival books. He, you know, he's in his teenagers at this point. He thought it would be okay, but it was really tough. Which, side note, please go read the book because the details are insane. A bunch of kids found out, like random kids in a different town that he had run to. A bunch, a bunch of rich kids. They found out that he had run away and that he was living in like a shed in the woods that he had found, like an empty shed that was super dusty. And I know they meant well, but they treated him like some sort of novel project. They wanted to hear about his adventures. They were like so fascinated by his abuse stories. And they got excited at the idea of sneaking him into their houses and sneaking food out to him. And to them, it was like an adventure. But to Joe, it was his life. And one of their parents found out and had the cops called on Joe. He was arrested and returned back to his mom, who was playing the perfect mom act, and she nearly killed him. When he was finally allowed back at school again, he had to do it again. He ran away again. And so for a while, his life was running away, being dragged back, running away, being dragged back over and over again. Joe had tried to explain to the police that his mom beats him, and nobody believed him. They had seen his file. He was labeled as this disturbed young troublemaker, and they believed that Leslie was the amazing mom. So Joe even resorted to threatening violence against his own mom. He thought if the police didn't think that she would kill him, maybe they would think he would kill her. He would scream, if you take me back there, I'm going to fucking kill her, and I promise you. Joe even tried to tell the police that his brother Barry had raped him, which is true. Joe didn't tell them about Douglas or anyone else. He just wanted a reason to not be home. He didn't want to. Joe said he was embarrassed, honestly. And Barry was briefly arrested and Leslie somehow convinced the police that Joe was the liar. Yeah, the police, social workers, everyone decided he was a liar. And nobody tried to figure out why he was the way he was. No child is born disturbed or a troublemaker. So what the hell happened? They didn't care. They didn't care to protect Joe. I think it's, you know, as humans, and I feel like we know this so much with true crime, but as humans, it's like people are programmed to think that a victim looks and acts a certain way. But in the real world, with how complex human minds are and how people deal with trauma, nobody acts like that. So Joe is acting out. He's stealing. He's doing all of these things. And people are like, he's just a shitty person. There's no way he's telling the truth because he's a little thief. Like, how does that even make sense? He's a kid. Meanwhile, Leslie got pregnant with Amani's baby and he was having none of that. So he went back to just solely being with Aunt Melissa, abandoning Leslie. And this is when Leslie started being sweet to Joe again for the first time in his life. She wanted him back home and she said, Joe, it's going to be different this time. She wanted money. Joe was old enough to get a job and make her money. He was in his late teens, and that's all she cared about. She still lost her temper, and she would slap him around, but it wasn't nearly as intimidating as before because Joe could walk. He could walk away, and he knew that. They started this new vicious cycle where Joe would go back after Leslie said a few nice things and then walk out when he realized that she would never change and she would never love him. A lot of people were confused at why he kept going back, and he said, I think because I wanted to believe I had a mom that loved me. 
I tried to convince myself that she was telling the truth and things would be different and that she would accept me. There must be something so instinctive inside of us when we think about our moms. Something that makes us want to believe that they love us, despite any evidence to the contrary. And so with that, Joe never went to the police about all the allegations. He felt like nobody would believe him. And as he got older, he had more troubles. You know, he was drinking. He was just on this path of self-destruction, even after he walked away from his mom for good. And then finally, he got married. And even then, he was still self-sabotaging the whole relationship, but his wife stuck around. And now they have five kids. And Joe says he works his whole life to be the kind of parent he wished he had. He thinks and he hopes that he's the type of dad his dad would have been if he were still alive. And the message he leaves with us is, um, he said, when we read about these child pornography rings or these pedophilia rings or children being abused and pictures being sold, you know, a lot of people go into this fearful state where we're like, oh my God, like what if that's my niece or my child or, you know, somebody I know that gets kidnapped and sold into these human trafficking things, which yes, it does happen. But he said that most of the children in child pornography are not kidnapped. They are not abducted from their homes. They are sold into the world by their very own parents, the ones that are there to protect them. That is terrifying. I mean, I think that should be a wake-up call. So nobody was punished? No. I mean, he tried to tell them about his own brother raping him, and they didn't believe him. Who would, bring, who would believe this story of Uncle Douglas and... Please go pick up his book. Um, give it a read. There's a lot of detail and stories in there that I didn't cover. And it's just, it's so heartbreakingly raw and emotional. And I, I love reading, um, well, love is the wrong word, but I think it's really important for us to listen to these stories from the people who've lived through it because I think it just breaks us from that cycle of expecting victims to act a certain way. Because once you hear Joe talk about it, you're like, well, that makes sense why he would act this way. That's the story of Joe Peters and the Inwa school in South Korea. That was a really tough one to get through. Please stay safe. And I will see you guys on Wednesday for the main episode. Bye.